Personal Statement Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. My name is Sui, and I am a sophomore at Vance High School. Hello, everyone. My name is Miliani Smith. My pronouns are she, hers, hers, and I am a junior at Charlotte Country Day School. I am a new fellow this semester and to the podcast club, but Millie, you were here last season, so how does it feel to be part of CYC podcast club and what can I look forward to? Well, I'd first like to say that like all the podcasts are absolutely amazing, um, but podcast club is the best. And if you didn't sign up for Podcast Club, I'm not exactly sure what you're doing. Um, obviously, I'm joking. Like I said, all the um, all the programs that CYC have are absolutely amazing. Um, but I would say in Podcast Club, we learn a lot about just trial and error. And you like get to see yourself and also like your peers grow um, as the season goes on. And I feel like that's one of the best parts. And obviously, I can't leave out the phenomenal and inspiring individuals that we meet. And with that being said, Sui, could you please introduce our lovely guest for today? Thank you, Millie. I'm excited to be here too. Now I'm going to in- introduce our guest, Delvin Joyce. Delvin Joy is an American financial advisor and former American football running back and return specialist. As a financial planner at Virgo Security LLC, a big part of the mission of his practice is promoting prosperity in the community through financial literacy and education to the first generation wealth builders, helping them create generational wealth and legacy for their families. Money is the only language Devin is an expert in football, family, and empowerment. Support Devin in his journey where he is today. I am ready. Thank you so much for that wonderful uh, introduction, Sweet and Miliani. I mean, lovely guest. I've, I don't think I've ever been called a lovely guest. So, <laughs> thank you for that first, and 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 welcome to all the uh, all the CYC uh, participants. I am I am good friends with uh, with Mr. Aaron, and so I keep up with everything that you guys are doing all the time, and I'm so impressed with a lot of the work that you guys are doing. So. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation today, Sweet. Thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Buckle up. Let's get personal. So since it's Black History Month, the first question that we wanted to ask you today is, who is your favorite Black historical figure and why? Wow. So, you know, right off the bat a really great question. So who is my favorite historical Black History Month figure? You know, obviously, as an athlete, I had a lot of athletes that I looked up to growing up. Um, but I, I'm also more into a lot of the academics, like you guys, right? So I, I consider myself somewhat of a high achiever as a, as a, as a student as well. And the, I would say the first historical figure from a Black History Month perspective that I got acquainted with was someone named George Washington Carver. Does anyone know who George Washington Carver is? Yeah, thumbs up if you know who he is. So George Washington Carver, you know, when I was a kid, I thought that he invented the peanut. Um, but he didn't invent the peanut. He actually just invented ways to utilize the peanut. And I love peanut butter. And so as a kid, George Washington Carver was my favorite historical figure. And, and what I learned since I've grown up is all the things that he had to, to go through and persevere through in order to um, you know, do some of the incredible things that he did that no one thought that he would have a chance to do. So I'm gonna say George Washington Carver. That is a really unique answer. I did like you always try to think about like what people are going to say, and that one thoroughly shocked me. That thank you for that so much. Yeah, that's what that, I'm here for. That's awesome. History always an impact and on us, and sometimes we don't realize it until later. But I wanted to ask you: Is there a moment or memory from your childhood that kind of shaped who you are today? 
Yeah, so this is something I'm, I'm really, really passionate about. So as you guys know, I played professional football for your favorite team, the New York Giants. We got a bunch of Giants fans on here today, I know, right? Everybody on here is a Giants fan. We have no Tom Brady fans on here. Is that is that right? <laughs> so, so I played professional football for the New York Giants. And if you could see me, if I st stood up right now, I'm not very tall. I'm five feet, six inches tall. And the what what shaped me the moment to your question, Sui, is my dad. My dad um, was only four feet, 10 inches tall. All right. So a lot of you guys on this call right now are, are taller than my dad was as an adult. And my dad told me something at a very young age, right? He said, son, don't ever let anyone tell you that you're too small to do anything. Don't ever let them tell you that you're too small or too short or not smart enough or anything to accomplish anything. Because he told me that when he was my age, he had let people talk him out of his dream of being a sports star because he was so short. And he was determined not to let that happen to me. So I can remember very distinctly at a very young age, my dad telling me that I could be anything and do anything. And so that really shaped the way that I saw the world. It shaped the way that I, I saw my opportunity with sports. And even though I was always the shortest guy on the team, I never let that get me down. And I was always trying to prove people wrong. Wow, that's amazing. I actually would just like to say me and your dad have a lot in common. I'm also for <laughs> So that's <laughs> absolutely I love it. <laughs> Um, and my mom has also given me similar advice. Um, she often uses the phrase, big things come in small packages. So glad to see that's that right. there. <laughs> awesome, um, awesome. Speaking of things that like my mom has said, obviously, you know, conversations that our parents have sometimes deal with like money, like use your money wisely and things like that. And there's just so much to talk about when it comes to money. I mean, like stocks, savings account. I mean, this whole thing with like Bitcoin now. Um, so what advice would you have for high school students to start building a solid foundation for saving money? Yeah, I love this question because I am really, really passionate about people building wealth. And I don't believe that you're ever too young or too old to start that journey. And so the first piece of advice that I would have for you guys, if you're, if you're just getting started, um, the, the hardest step is the first step, right? So I would say just start. And, and the, the reality is you guys have a lot of time. There are older people who don't have the amount of time that you have to accumulate wealth and let their money grow. You guys have a lot of time. So I have a pop quiz for you. And if I want you guys to put this, put your answers in the chat. All right. Anybody ever hear Amazon? Yeah, the company. You guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. Anybody ever bought, buy anything from Amazon? Right? Yes. All right. So if you had invested $3,000 in Amazon stock in 1997, how much money would you have today? And I, I want you to put your answers in the chat. What are your guesses? So a $3,000 investment in 1997, how much money would it be today? So Aaliyah says a few million. Takira says 300,000. Jalen, I love that answer, by the way, billions. Uh, by the way, my son's name is Jalen. Um, and so Yasmin says a uh, millions. And so the answer is, uh, let's, let's round it up because the number changes every day, but it is a few million, a couple million, right? You'd almost have $2 million. And so think about, think back to 1997, that was only what, 24 years ago. And you guys are very young. So you could make it small investments right now. And by the time you're my age, I'm 40 something, uh, you might have a few million dollars. And that's really what it's all about. It's getting in and staying committed to it and starting as early as you can. Now, the other piece of advice, and I'm going to say this really quickly, is I'm a big believer in owning stocks that of companies that you use, right? So hopefully everybody understands that when you own the stock of a company, that means that you own a part of that company, Right. So if I own Starbucks stock, I am an owner 
I'm a part owner of Starbucks, the company. You guys with me? And so I, I own Starbucks because I drink Starbucks all the time. My kids drag me to Starbucks. I own Nike stock because I wear fresh Nikes. You know what I'm saying? Air Force Ones. Anybody else? All right. And so own the stocks that you actually use. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, I really love the, yes, the fresh Nikes. I, you know, I'm not sure if we call them Nikes anymore, but yes, the fresh Nikes for sure. I think we should start. Miliani, Miliani. I know you're drippy. I know you're drippy. Oh no, so. I'm not. <laughs> I'm Please, no one come to my school during the week. I absolutely, oh, no, I'm the opposite of Jerpy. Oh, Mr. Aaron, don't lie. Don't lie. <laughs> okay, so I heard in the beginning talking, you had talked about like generational wealth. And obviously that was something that was definitely talked about like during the summer with like Black Lives Matter protests and people talking about how white people most of the time have a lot of generational wealth due to like slavery and just different systems that were like put into place. So are there any particular issues or obstacles um, to wealth building that black people or other minorities face um, and how could they possibly overcome that? Yeah, so that is a um, that is a really good question. And so the answer is multifaceted. I'm going to give you a more a more streamlined answer. And so when you look at wealth in this country, Miliani, to your point, there, there were systemic structures in place that kept certain communities from participating in the prosperity of this country, right? So we can all agree on that. But what, what also happened as a part of that, and this is what's not talked about so much, right? So everybody understands that there's this racial wealth gap. What also came out of that was a, 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 an education gap. Right. And the education gap means that the people in some of these disadvantaged communities who never got to participate in the prosperity of this country also didn't get the education so that when they did start earning money, they didn't know how to participate in the prosperity of this country. And so what you're seeing now is that, you know, black and brown or other minority communities have actually you know, made incredible strides in terms of income, in terms of assets, but they don't always necessarily know how to put those assets to work to create wealth, right? And, and so one of my jobs, one of the things I'm most passionate about in my career as a financial planner is making sure that not only do I have an opportunity to close that racial wealth gap, but I get an opportunity to speak to different communities to close that education gap. Thank you. Wow. I'm so sorry, so you can go. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. So Thank give, you, Sui. So giving the student loan crisis many current students, recent guard and future college students are facing, what is your approach to student loans and how do you concept clients on what is reasonable to take on? So you guys are not going to probably like this answer. Um, but so I don't, I don't work with high school kids. All right. So just, just throwing that out there. The people that I work with are parents. So here's the conversation that I'm having with your parents. Okay. Um, it's, it's really do not allow your child to take on that student loan debt um, for a university or for a degree that does not have a practical application for a career that they have thought out and that they want to pursue, right? Now, that's hard, by the way, because I know when I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to be drippy like Miliani, right? So I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and so I, if going back and looking at it, I would not have taken my own advice. But my best advice to you guys is the sooner you can figure out your career track, the sooner you can figure out, you know, whether or not your anticipated career will be enough to pay back the anticipated debt that you have. And I'll give you an example. I've got a client right now that I just started working with 
She, she just graduated from medical school and she's got over $200,000 in student loan debt, but her income is also $350,000. So we have a really solid plan to pay back that student loan debt in the next five to seven years, because the, the career track that she's chosen has an income range that will support the amount of debt that she took on. Now, let's look on the other side. You know, you could be someone who chooses a, a, a major in college, a degree in college that, you know, may only pay you $30,000, $50,000 a year. Um, you probably don't want to take on $200,000 of student loan debt. And so I would say try to make that correlation between the anticipated career and the amount of debt that you that would that career would support and 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 also look for the free money right there's so many opportunities there's so many scholarships out there all you got to do is find the time sit down write a couple of essays but you should be applying to scholarships all over the country there's a Kiwanis club in in um Kalamazoo Michigan that wants to give you a $500 scholarship you just have to go on there and submit an essay Thank you for that. I hope all the juniors on here are listening because our time is coming up. We got to not only worry about our college apps coming up, but also the wonderful scholarship applications. But that is CY's <laughs> goal for this semester, money, money, money. So thank you for that message. Um, I actually wanted to go back to your, I guess, um, if you could like expand a little bit more on like the education gap. I know you work in um, finance, but I guess how do you also try and address that um, educational gap when you're talking to parents? Yeah, so especially when I'm talking to parents, because most of my clients are married with children um, with competing priorities, right? And those competing priorities might be retirement or sending kids to college or managing their budget, all those things. Um, the, the, the main thing that I try to do in terms of closing that, that education gap is, you know, when I make recommendations to my clients, I don't just want to, to make recommendations and have them trust that the recommendations that I'm making are, are the right thing. Right, I want them to trust that, but I also want them to understand why I'm making certain recommendations. So as a part of my process, for every single client that I work with, in fact, I've got one tonight when I hang up with you guys, for every single client that I work with, I develop what I call an education meeting. And that education meeting is where I have determined, you know, based on your goals and objectives, Mr. and Mrs. Client, what you are trying to accomplish here are the things that I need to educate you on in order to help you comprehend my recommendations. And I do that for every client. And that's a two hour meeting. I create a, a PowerPoint specifically for them. I share my screen on a Zoom just like this and I just take them through that presentation. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an idea of one of, the, one of the places where a lot of people have this miseducation about investments. And it's a concept called risk tolerance, all right? So raise your hand if anybody understands the concept or if, if, if you've ever heard the term risk tolerance. Anyone? All right, great. So we're going to go to school tonight. Is that all right? All right, all right. So Karuna has heard of risk tolerance. But so risk tolerance is the amount of risk that you can tolerate, right? It's a, you know, easy, easy word, risk tolerance, the amount of risk that you can tolerate specifically with your investments, all right? And from a risk tolerance standpoint, determining how much risk you're willing to take will determine which investments you should choose. So I try to help people understand what their risk tolerance is. So let me figure out what your risk tolerance is. So I have a hypothetical question. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, all right. So hypothetical question. Let's say that we have two options right now. The first option is I can give you $200, no strings attached, no risk. It's already in your cash app as we speak, $200. That's the first option. The second option though, is that we can flip a coin. 
And if the coin lands on heads, I give you $1,000. If it lands on tails, you give me $200. All right, so by a show of hands, or you can put it in the chat, who's taking the $200, no strings attached, and who's gonna flip the coin for a chance to get the thousand or lose 200? Ooh, CYC feeling risky today. They said coin flip. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Aaron, what are you teaching these kids, right? So everybody's flipping the coin. All right. I love that. And so that is a very, very simple illustration of risk tolerance. But that, you know, for the people that said they would flip the coin, that might suggest to me that you have a more aggressive or growth-oriented risk tolerance. So we can afford to invest in riskier stocks, maybe international stocks or small company stocks, right? Startups, technology companies. For those of you who said that you would want it, you would take the $200, no risk because it's guaranteed. Well, that might suggest to me that you have a, a low risk tolerance and we should look for safety, right? We should invest in big companies like Walmart or Google or maybe even bonds. And so for a lot of people, it's really just helping them understand what level of risk they're comfortable with and helping them figure out how they should be invested relative to that risk. Thank you for that mini lesson. I'm sure we all, I mean, I'm learning so much. We're not even like halfway done and my mind is already blown. <laughs> Everyone else is taking in this great information. Um, it's obvious that you're super passionate about this, um, but I would like to go back a little bit. I know we talked about um, your childhood, kind of like what you do in finances, but more so like how did you like get here? So we read um, in another interview that the NFL actually allowed you to find your um, purpose and your passion in the financial industry. Could you talk more about that process? Yeah, so this is a, this is a, I love this question because there, there's my, my favorite word in the English language, guys, is stick-to-itiveness, all right? Do you guys know that word, stick-to-itiveness? It's my favorite word in the English language. And I like to say that stick-to-itiveness is what allowed me to even get to the NFL because right out of high school, I was not recruited to play college football. I went to college, I went to James Madison University Hopefully we got some CYCers looking at JMU, the Harvard of the South. Anyway, but I, I, I was not recruited to go to, to play football. So I actually went to JMU as a walk-on, which means that I, don't, I didn't go there on a scholarship. I went there based on my academic merit and then decided to, to try to walk on to the football team where they gave me an opportunity to play and I had to earn a scholarship, right? And, and that took stick-to-itiveness because they all said that I was too short to play college football. Now, fast forward, I break a couple of records. I'm All-American in college. And now the NFL also does not give me an opportunity to come play because they also said that I was too short to be an NFL player. But as fate would have it, I kept trying. And ultimately, I sent out my tape to all the NFL teams and only one team called me back and it was the New York Giants. But right out of college, before the Giants called me and gave me an opportunity to play, I actually went to work with a financial services company in Washington, DC, right out of college. So I started in this career before the NFL. And so when I retired from football, it was a natural transition for me to come back into, uh, into this industry because I had been helping some of my former teammates with financial planning and with some of their own financial advice. Wow, that's great. I can relate to it with the high because when I went, when I played the volleyball, I was so short. So I like, sometimes <laughs> I can't fix so. <laughs> <You're amazing. laughs> uh, Were there any particular like, challenge you face? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Were there any particular high challenge you face? Heartless? Well, I'm sorry, I'm I didn't. Heartless. I think hurdles. She, Did you say hurdles? Challenge. I mean, like challenge you face or a chain you had made. Oh yes. So um, 
you know, there were definitely, as I, as I left the NFL and came into, came back into financial services, the biggest challenge that I faced was that, um, everybody that I wanted to be a, a financial planning client of mine, they all only saw me as a football player, right? And, and football players, you know, sometimes we look at athletes, we don't necessarily think of athletes as being the, the, the smartest people, right, in the room, except for Mr. Aaron, of course, that guy's a genius. But everybody else, they, they typically don't see, you know, the athletes as the smartest people. And so I had to overcome the perception that I, that, you know, the most important thing about me or that all I was about was my athletic career as a professional football player. I had to rebrand myself to, to be this financial planner and branding is really important. You guys all have a brand. I know we got some sophomores, juniors, some, maybe some seniors on this call. Um, you guys have a brand in your school. And I like to say that your brand is actually what, what speaks for you when you're not in the room, right? When at some point someone's having a meeting and Miliani, your name comes up and your brand is what's gonna represent you in that room and speak for you. So my best advice is always work to make sure that you're putting out the best possible um, brand. Thank you. Yes, I think <laughs> I hopefully my brand is not being drippy. I mean, I think that'd be pretty cool. You know, like the first <laughs> of mine. Oh, yeah. Miliani drippy. That'd be um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully my brand for you isn't being drippy. Um, and you are so much more than just an NFL, former NFL player to us. But I cannot leave this podcast without asking you the question that I'm sure everybody wants to know. What is an NFL locker room like? And what is something that an NFL player experiences that fans might not realize? <laughs> All right, what is this podcast rated? It's rated G, right? Okay, no. So an NFL locker room, as you can imagine, because football is so high intensity, it's very competitive and in an NFL locker room, I like to say you got to have thick skin, right? Now, I know you guys probably roast each other all the time and have fun with each other, but that is literally nonstop in an NFL locker room. So, you know, you got to be quick and have your comebacks ready and make sure that, you know, you don't let people uh, get the best of you when, when you're getting roasted. But really, it's just a lot of guys having a lot of fun who, who also have this mutual goal that they're trying to reach. And so there is this level of respect that everybody has for one another. Everybody's rooting for each other. Even though it's highly competitive and everybody's fighting for jobs, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing where everybody's also trying to help one another. So NFL locker rooms are a lot of fun. You'll hear a lot of jokes, but you'll also hear a lot of guys encouraging and patting each other on the back uh, to, to try to hit, hit that ultimate goal that, you guys saw the Bucks get last night. <laughs> Thank you for that wonderful transition. I actually had one more um, quick little NFL question. Me personally, um, I went for the wings and the dip last night. I went for the food. <laughs> it was amazing too. Um, absolutely delicious. Um, but what team were you going for yesterday? Oh, you know, so this was a hard one for me because I am – you know, I am not a Tom Brady fan. And by the way, I have a lot of respect for Tom Brady, but we all know that sports hate is not real hate, right? So it's okay to sports hate someone. Um, so I am not a Brady fan. However, the, the, the Bucks had three players on their team from James Madison University. So I had three fellow alums on that team. And so while I didn't want to root for Tom Brady to win, I wanted to root for my fellow alums who were playing in that game. So I was still pulling for Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes. I couldn't do it. I just could not root for Brady. <laughs> you. <laughs> you know, obviously, you were a student athlete. So how did you manage your athletics and academics? Did you find the school system work for or against you in regards to balance? 
boat. Yeah, school, college, the transition to college was hard for me because high school, you know, I, I had not always been, been the best studier, right? I don't study well, but I'm a great test taker. So I could kind of skate through high school and get A's and B's and be a star athlete, play three sports without studying and doing a lot of preparation. When I got to college, though, those bad habits that I built in high school caught up with me. And I'm just telling you my, my freshman year, um, you know, playing college sports is like a full-time job. And I was just not ready for what, uh, what was in store. And so I really had to, to truly buckle down. I had to hire tutors and make sure that I was truly preparing myself uh, to be successful. And, and looking back on it, Sweet, if I'm, if I'm being as candid as possible, um, I do not think I, I truly applied myself as well as I should have during my college years um, be, because I was focused so much on, on sports. And so it was a tough balance, but I always made sure that I was, I was focused on some of the other intangibles that I would get from college that would help me to be successful. So, so you guys will see this, you know, of course your grades are important, but those extracurricular activities, learning how to interact with people, getting outside of your comfort zone and networking and communicating with adults and people who have wealth, those are the things that, you know, you won't be able to see reflected in your GPA, but they're very, very important in terms of helping you to be successful. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, no, I definitely think. Oh, I'm so sorry, sweet. Oh, that's okay. like, no, go, girl. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got one more question for you, Delvin. How are yes. those you apply to your current career path? Yeah, so those skills have definitely applied to my current career path because 90% of my job right now is networking and communicating and talking with other people. And I, and I can tell you that where I truly got comfortable giving public presentations and, and public speaking was in a communications class my junior year in college, right? You know, we had to do these group presentations. We had to create these, these, these uh, PowerPoint presentations and we had to present and it was out of my comfort zone. And now I look back on that and, and now what I do for a living and it was invaluable. So I, I'm gonna give you guys some of the best advice that I wish someone had told me while I was in high school. Get very comfortable with public speaking, right? That is like literally the one thing that most people would say they'd rather go to the dentist and get a root canal rather than go and speak in front of people. And if you can get comfortable with that, you will set yourself apart from 90% of the U.S. population because most people are not comfortable with that. So I, hopefully at CYC, you guys are being forced to give presentations. I love this we, you and Miliani and this fellow program, and you guys are having to do this. This is fantastic. Yes. No, I'm once again, I'm so sorry for cutting you off, sweet. That was so rude. <laughs> um yeah so you, you guys heard it here first you should have joined podcast podcast club and um since you did it you know you always have next semester we won't be going anywhere but podcast club is the way to go um but yes those are all things that cyc definitely values especially networking every monday we usually have a guest come in we're always having conversations with each other so although I don't think we have been forced to give presentations yet hopefully Mr. Aaron did not catch that because no one wants to do that <laughs> um we definitely are practicing <laughs> public speaking and communicating with people um we're gonna go ahead and move on to the Q&A section so yes I think just drop the questions in the chat and we'll give people a second all right. Come on, guys, don't be shy. Someone's typing.
So we have a question. Is, yeah. is there any way to end? Do you want me to read it or do you guys oh, read, you read it? it. That's no. fine. <laughs> okay. So the first question, is there any way to invest with no risk? <clears throat> um, absolutely. There's, there are ways to invest with no risk. Um, one of the ways to invest with, I'd say no risk or very little risk is with U.S. Treasury securities right? These are government bonds. These are bonds that are issued by the U.S. government. Those are fully guaranteed because the U.S. government can always tax us as citizens in order to pay back those, those um, to pay the interest on those bonds, right? And to pay back those bonds. So I would say one of the ways to invest with no risk is U.S. Treasury securities, uh, what classes did you pick in high school? I'm sorry. Do you guys want to lead it? Oh, no, you're completely fine. So I, I'm like reading the questions. I didn't mean to say anything, but okay. No, <laughs> yeah. So we didn't get a chance to, to, tr I don't remember high school that well. <laughs> I've had a lot of concussions y'all, but, um, but I do know I, you know, I was, I was big in biology. So I loved biology. In fact, I was on the science team. So I was the only athlete who was on an academic team. So I was on the science team when I was in high school and I was big in Spanish. Um, and so um, if anyone wants to speak Spanish with me, uh, vamanos. So I, uh, I, lo I love the Spanish language. I love the idea of communicating with other people in other languages. And that also helped me because for a part of my career, in financial planning, I actually lived in South Florida uh, for six years, um, and I had an office in Miami, and which is a heavily um, Spanish-speaking uh, area, and so I had to use my Spanish in order to get by in that in that area. So, love Spanish. What do you think about real estate investing? I think real estate is great. I think when you when you look at the spectrum of investments, there are the traditional investments. Let's call that the stock market. And there, you don't, if you get, have a certain level of wealth, you shouldn't have all of your money in just the U.S. stock market. You should have some money in the international stock market as well, but you should also have money in real estate because those are what we call non-correlating assets, right? So if the stock market's down, then maybe the housing market's up, or if the housing market's down, maybe the stock market is up. So I like investing in real estate. And to uh, Miliani's earlier point about the racial wealth gap, that is one of the ways that other communities had been able to build wealth in this country was through real estate and home prices going up and passing that real estate down to their families. So real estate's a great way to build generational wealth. Um, could you one day play guitar for us? All right. I absolutely could play guitar for you. I mean, I don't know if you want me to do this today, but I mean, I absolutely can. So you tell me who you guys like. I'm not going to do that though. So it's not that, it's not that podcast. All right. Um, but one day I will come by CYC. I will bring my guitar and we'll have a party. How about that? All right. What suggestions would you make to young people trying to learn the ins and outs of investments, given all of the misinformation? All right. Hopefully you guys bought. Oh, sorry. Hopefully you guys bought GameStop uh, stock a couple of weeks. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. So so the suggestion, the, the main suggestion that I have is just, you know, do your own research. Right. The first the first thing that I told you earlier is you know, figure out those companies that you like and that you use on a daily basis. Like, right, if you have an iPhone, maybe you should buy Apple, right? If you have a MacBook computer, buy Apple. If you wear Nikes, buy Nike. All, look at all the things that you utilize. That's where I would start. And then start doing some research and reading about these companies and some of the things that you think um, would actually influence the price of the stock. So, you know, you can invest in a stock, right? So what's the goal of investing? You want to typically buy that stock at a low and sell it when it's high. One of the advice, the best advice I could give you is that when you think about investing, think about it for the long term. Do not try to time the market. 
All right. So get invested, stay invested and look at it as a long-term opportunity. How did you not give up with being denied? Uh, great question, Yasmin. I mean, the, the, the main reason that I did not give up is because I could always hear my dad in my head at four feet, 10 inches tall telling me, you know, not to let anyone tell me that I was too small or that I couldn't accomplish anything. And so that was really what motivated me and inspired me to keep, keep going. And, and, you know, for me, it was, I was too short, you know, for you, there's going to be something, right? You're not pretty enough. You're not, you know, you're not fast enough. You're not skinny enough. There's always going to be these things and, and what people say about you. Um, you just have to find the, the inspiration within yourself and look for those mentors and those people who are going to give you encouragement and utilize that to help you get to the next level. Right. I also have a thing that I, I call remember a trophy and remember a trophy just means, you know, remember a time when you were successful, no matter how small it was. Right. Because there's going to come a time I can promise you, you know, it might be in 20 years when you're old and gray and you got kids or whatever, and you know, you're going to not get that promotion at your job. And you're going to go all the way back to an experience you had at CYC where you overcame something or you were super successful. And that's going to give you the motivation and inspiration to keep going. So remember a trophy, no matter how trivial one of your successes is, it's always something that you can use to build on to get to the next level. How have skills learned in your NFL career applied to your financial career? Um, that's a fantastic question. I actually have a motivational presentation called stick that I do where I talk about seven lessons that I learned throughout my athletic career that I used to be successful in my financial career. I would love to come back and do that presentation for you guys if, uh, if you would have me. Um, but I would say the, the biggest the biggest lesson that I learned uh, in the NFL that I used to be successful here is that there's always somebody looking to take your spot. All right. There's always somebody looking to take your spot. And I'm not saying that you should, to, you know, that people are vindictive or that you should always be looking over your shoulder or watching your back. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that that's the mentality that you have to take into everything that you do. Because when we, when we don't feel like there's someone looking to take our spot, and when we don't feel like you know, we have to do our best or excel, then that's when we start slacking, right? But if we always feel pushed, if we always feel like you know, there's someone that would, would really want this opportunity to be on this podcast right now, so I should really do my best, right? That's when we know we're gonna do well. Think about how, how, think about your BFF. Who's got a BFF? Who's got a best friend forever, right? You're, I'm telling you, you're going to be a better best friend if you think that there's somebody that could take your spot, right? There are things that you're going to do that are going to make you a better best friend. You're going to be more considerate. You're going to text more. You're going to remember their birthday. There's all these things that you're going to do. So um, I'd say that's the biggest thing that I learned. Uh, wow, Takira, very high level question. When do you know it's time to seek out a financial planner? I love that question because a lot of my clients feel like you have to have a lot of money in order to have a financial planner. And what I would say is that it's, it's time for you to seek a financial planner once you have uh, clarity around what you're trying to accomplish, right? So what are your goals? So spend some time understanding what your goals are, get some clarity there, and then hopefully you hire someone like me who's going to be a financial coach who's going to you know, help you to accomplish your objectives. And then here's the other part of it, the A word. You guys know the A word, right? Accountability. Someone who's going to help to hold you accountable to see those things through. I could put together the best financial plan for my clients and say, here's how you can get to your objectives, but it doesn't really mean anything if I don't stay involved and engage with them and hold them accountable to help them get there. 
What are some financial myths that you've heard that people believe are true, but aren't true? I love that question. Let me think about that. All right. So here's a financial myth that I that people believe is true. So one of the best ways that I believe you can create generational wealth is through life insurance. You guys ever heard of life insurance? It's 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 you pass away and your beneficiaries, whoever that is, your heirs, your children, your spouse, uh, they get a bunch of money. Right. And life insurance, for whatever reason, in some in some communities, has gotten this stigma that, you know, if I buy a lot of life insurance, let's say I buy a two million dollar life insurance policy, guess what? Somebody's going to try to kill me, right? And that is a myth, right? So we got to stop watching these uh, Dateline NBC and Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix and all these TV shows, because the reality is. You know, you you buy life insurance for two reasons. The first is because you love someone, right? Because you want to make sure that your family is well taken care of if you were to pass away because you love them. The second reason is because you owe someone. So maybe you've got a mortgage, right? That you owe three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, and you want to make sure that if you were to pass away, that that mortgage is paid off so that your family is well taken care of. Sometimes when when people think of life insurance, especially going back to that education gap, right? When sometimes when people think life insurance because of the misinformation and miseducation, they only think about final expenses. They only think about having enough life insurance to pay for their funeral. When the reality is if if you only have enough to pay for your burial, your family will be buried financially after you're gone. So really good question. I like that. Um, how, how many more do we have? How, what do I think about everything that's happening with GameStop and many short sellers losing millions slash billions? Wow. So do you, I mean, I don't want to get into a lesson about short selling, but what I will say is that um, I understand how everyone was rooting for, um, let's call it the everyday investor, right? The, 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 the kids on Reddit who were trying to drive this, the stock price of GameStop up to hurt the, the, billion, the billionaire hedge fund people. Like I understand that psyche, um, but unfortunately, none of us wants to be in a, in, a, in a market or an economy where a group of people can get together and manipulate the price of a stock. So while it was exciting, while I watched it in awe, um, I was not really necessarily a fan of what was going on. And um, hopefully, hopefully that doesn't happen again. Did I say that on the record? Jabari, you can edit that out, right? Jador? No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Um, sounds like a nice dish to investor. Uh, so at what age can you start building credit? Um, so credit is like your GPA for your, um, your, your um, dependability of paying back your debts, right? So if you are not dependable, if you have not paid back your debts, then your GPA is going to be really low, right? Your credit score is going to be really low. Unfortunately, in this country, credit sometimes is more valuable than actual money, all right? I'm gonna say that again. Credit in this country sometimes is more valuable than money. And so you wanna make sure that you protect your, your credit score and, and keep it as high as possible. Now, you can start um, building your credit as soon as you're old enough to put things in your name, right? As soon as you can start building that financial GPA. So, you know, if you've got a cell phone in your name right now, then you may be building some credit. Typically when you turn 18 is when you're eligible uh, to, to incur debt and take on debt. So I'd say typically starting at age 18, but um, you know, you could don't do like I did when I was 20, when I was 18, I went to college, first day on campus, somebody gave me a credit card for free at some orientation thing. And you know, within a week, I had $700 on this credit card, 
because I had no concept that I had to actually pay that money back. So I got a new Nintendo 64 and I got, you guys don't even know what that is, but let's just say I had fun. I was drippy, uh, Miliani. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think those were all of the questions that I saw come in. So thank you for taking the time to answer all of those. And also thank you to all the fellows who submitted questions. Um, I actually got one interesting question um, privately that asked, how many um, times do you have to file your taxes incorrectly for the IRS to come after you? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So is anybody scheming on some tax evasion over here? I mean, I'm just, I just want to know where the question's coming from. Just kidding. So, so you know, it's, it's funny. There's, there are some egregious things that you could do on your tax return that will result in audit, right? So if you, if you do certain things incorrectly where you're taking huge deductions on your tax return every year, then that, that's sort of a red flag. So I will tell you that most people do their taxes wrong, um, but it typically results in them paying more, more money in taxes, not less. And so the IRS isn't really necessarily going to knock on your door and say, hey, you, you paid us too much. Wow. That is, I love the person who asked that question. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> <just> really, <laughs> I'm wondering the same thing. Is anyone planning on doing anything, you know, Interesting. Thank you for the audience. I'm just really processing the own question still. <laughs> um, but okay, the last question that we ask everyone, and you were the first person to answer for season two. So, you know, no pressure at all. But and from 100 years from now, when people think of Delvin Joyce, what is the statement that you want to have made on the world? Yeah, you know what? No one's ever asked me that, but I would say that for me in a hundred years, it would be that um, I helped to close the racial wealth gap and and build econ equality into our economic system by empowering people um, to to financial independence and financial wellness. Wow, that was so concise but powerful. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was amazing. Well, thank you guys for having me. You guys are fantastic. And I just want to encourage you guys to keep going and don't get discouraged. I know the world can beat you up sometimes, but you guys are all going to be amazing. Don't forget about me if you have to hire me one day. Um, but I love everything you guys are doing. Keep up the good work.